Good morning, everyone. Hope that you had a good uh, Thanksgiving. Good Thanksgiving. Here's a story to start us out. This comes from Doris Sanford. It says, there was once a lady who worked in a high-rise office building in London. Every day for her coffee break, she went down to the first floor cafeteria and purchased a Kit Kat candy bar from the vending machine and a cup of coffee. This day was no different. After finding a small table in the corner and seating herself, she leaned over to search for something in her purse. When she sat up again, a gentleman had seated himself across from her at the table. He had a cup of coffee, a donut, and her Kit Kat bar in his mouth. He didn't apologize or offer any explanation. He simply ate it. She was surprised and irritated, but said nothing. As quickly as possible, she drank her coffee. The more she thought about it, however, the angrier she became. Finally, she stood to leave and stomped over beside him, grabbing the remnant of his donut and stuffing it in her mouth. As best she could, she said, There now, how does that feel? And marched back to her office, where she again opened her purse. To her horror, there on top was her Kit Kat candy bar. (laughs) Ever lost it and made a fool of yourself? then you're going to uh, the prayer in today's psalm is for you and for me. I'm going to ace this one because I have a lot of personal experience with the subject matter that the prayer is covering today, making a fool of oneself. Um, So the uh, Psalms is what we're studying in the Bible from the Old Testament. Psalms is a book of Uh, 150 ancient prayers. It teaches us how to talk to God and the types of things that we can talk to God about. Now, sometimes the Bible contains, like today, painfully practical passages. Some scriptures contain some truths which are so everyday that when we hear them, all we can do is kind of groan and go, oh, that's me. Ouch. Psalm 39 is one of those passages for, for some of us, including yours truly. We're going to begin in Psalm 39, verse 1. Here's how the prayer begins. It says, I said to myself, I will watch what I do, and I will not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue when the ungodly are around me. So you see what the the guy's praying for. Evidently, he's he's with some sort of crowd, and something's wrong with him. We don't know exactly what. But maybe it's that type of crowd where you constantly have to be careful about what you say, because they'll turn things around on you. Or maybe it's that type of crowd where you say stuff to fit in, but really you shouldn't do that because you don't really believe that stuff, and then that gets spread around, and that makes trouble for you. Or maybe it's one of those crowds where they just talk and talk and talk, and the stuff they say is so wrong and so corrupt and so dumb that you can hardly stand to listen to it anymore. So it's one of those. He's praying, God, I'm going to hold my tongue when I'm around these people. And then we get to verse 2. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. Who relates to this kind of moment? Right? You promised you wouldn't speak. You wouldn't post anything. You were not going to go there. And then what happened? The churning of the gut. And the twisting of the stomach and the hot feeling in the face. And then some dam breaks and some idiot starts mouthing off and reposting a bunch of stuff. And you look around to say, who is it that could be making all of this noise? And to your surprise, it's you. And then you're embarrassed and everybody's getting really mad or no one's listening to you anyway, which annoys even more. It doesn't fix a thing, of course. And you think, why didn't I just stay silent? 
I was doing so good for 45 whole seconds. So who relates to this kind of a moment this morning? Okay. Of course, the real problem is with these types of experiences is that they're sometimes more serious than just embarrassing ourselves over a, over a stolen candy bar or, or a tirade on Twitter, right? Sometimes these moments when our tongue gets out of control, it really hurts other people. Some of us have done great harm to our family with our careless, angry words. Some of us have lost a lot of trust and credibility because we could not control ourselves. Ashley and I were introduced in college by a a mutual friend um, twice. Because the first time she was crossing the cafeteria to meet me, I was uh, teasing a friend, but I was teasing in a really harsh, sarcastic way. And when she got within earshot to where she could hear what I was saying, she said, no thanks, and turned around and walked the other way. So we did not meet that day. Now, thankfully, a year later, we had a class together and she saw a fuller picture and and still married me. That's her problem. I won. So, um, how different would my life have been, though, if that moment in the cafeteria was the only moment we had where I couldn't control my tongue? How many opportunities, I wonder, how many friends, how many blessings have we lost because we just had to talk, just had to post, just had to control the situation, just had to save the day, just had to be the voice of justice, slaying the ignorant with our fiery words. We just had to. Here's a story from Keith Miller in his book, Hunger for Healing. So there's a graduation from a seminary, right? A bunch of students getting ready to be ministers. And they have a graduation speaker. At the end of the remarks, the speaker told this story. He said, years ago, there was a husky 13-year-old farm boy who was very ambitious. He worked from dawn to dusk, and his father was very proud of him. For the boy's 14th birthday, his father bought him a second-hand Gravely mowing tractor. The Gravely company made very fine tractors, and the boy was thrilled. He began to earn extra money by mowing yards and fields of neighbors and of the people in the nearby town. The boy took great care of his machine. He washed and cleaned the motor and shined the exterior. One day he noticed the blade was dull. The boy... Uh, very carefully drove the tractor into the barn, turned it over to take the bolt off that held the blade on. Having been around machinery a lot, he knew to loosen the bolt, you turn it counterclockwise. So he put a big wrench on the bolt and gave it a turn. It only moved a tiny bit and then it wouldn't budge. Now this boy was very proud of his physical strength. He was a star lineman on the school football team, but he couldn't move the bolt at all. And he wasn't about to ask his dad for help on such a routine matter. Just then he remembered what his father had told him in a similar situation. Get a longer piece of pipe and put it over the wrench handle to get some leverage. So he got a pipe and put it over the handle. Then he pulled on the pipe. Nothing. Then he got under the pipe with his back and tried to lift it, but the bolt would not move. Finally, in humiliation, the young man drove the tractor in the family pickup to the Gravely tractor dealer in town. When he got there, the mechanic looked at the the stuck bolt and said, wait a minute, let me check something. Then he looked up the model number. Then he said, I hate to tell you this, but for several years, the Gravely company reversed the threads on that bolt. You've been tightening that sucker, trying to loosen it. And don't worry about being strong, son. You've tightened it so bad, we're going to have to burn it off with a torch. The visiting preacher then paused and continued. Everything you've learned in this school is like that. 
when it comes to dealing with your intimate relationships and your spiritual lives, if you try to use your mind to figure out your family, if you try to control them the way you would a business deal or a scientific experiment, you're going to wind up tightening and ruining the very thing you want to free, blocking the very relationships you want to release. Let's be real. Some of us have been tightening the bolt on our family for a long time. Some of us have lost friendships. Some of us have lost a job or a career that we really wanted. I can't tell you the number of people who have applied to work here at our church. And after going online and looking at their online persona, I threw their resume right into the trash. Some of us have really damaged our church both in the eyes of the community and how safe and comfortable the people who already go here feel because of our angry outbursts. The consequences are heavy. Some of us still feel like we're being punished every day for something that we said years ago. It's like we keep getting smacked for one day when our mouth got ahead of us. We could pray with the writer of Psalm 39, verse 10. Please stop striking me. I am exhausted by the blows from your hand. When you discipline us for our sins, you consume like a moth what is precious to us. Each of us is but a breath. Interlude. The Hebrew word is salah. The moment of silence with God. So when I teach praying from the Psalms, um, I, I teach it the way that it was taught to me. That you should read, and then you should listen. That you should recite, and then you should be silent. Because, have you ever gotten a phone call from someone who talks so much, you can literally lay the phone down, I've done this, go put a load of laundry in, come back, pick up the receiver, and start going, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, again, and they don't even know you were gone. I wonder if God ever feels that way when we pray. Dear God, I was with those people and I tried to be quiet. God says, yeah, but, but these people, they're so dumb. I just, I just couldn't listen to them anymore. And God says, okay, but what you need to, I wish I had never said anything now. Uh-huh. Why is this happening to me, God? And, and why are you so mean? God says, well, now, I just feel like you're smacking me, like you're a moth eating everything I own. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. When I read the Psalms here on weekday mornings, I read a stanza or two and then I walk around the sanctuary. It's supposed to be silent, supposed to let God speak. It's incredibly hard to keep my mind silent and not run off and plan my day or not run off and plan a sermon or or not run off and rehearse a conversation with a difficult person I'm never actually going to be brave enough to have in real life. And it's just one walk around this room. It's incredibly hard to leave space for God to speak. Now, every once in a while, when I get it right, and God can get a word in edgewise, how does that come? For me, it comes as a thought, so I don't necessarily hear voices, but a thought. But it's, it's often in words that I don't think I would have used, or even sometimes about a topic that I wasn't, didn't think I was praying about. God always comes in at an angle. It's one of the ways I feel like I can discern it's from him and not just my mind racing. 
I think the writer of Psalm 39 had one of these at an angle visits from God. Because verse 4 seems to have nothing, and then we'll discover everything, uh, to do with what we've been praying so far. All of a sudden it says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. Interlude. Salah. We are merely moving shadows. And all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. Now what does that prayer have to do with popping off and saying or posting the wrong thing and then getting punished for not being able to keep our trap shut? Well, maybe everything. Maybe it has everything to do with that. I would never have put this point in a message myself. But since the scripture has has brought it, let's go there. Life is too short. Life is too short for all this kind of silliness. And that's what it is. There are ways to be heard by those we really care about. And there are ways to actually help those in need. And there are ways to fix things that are broken. But it's never angry outburst and reposting a bunch of stuff. It's never been that. I'll tell you this from experience, from personal experience. When they roll you into surgery and they put that plastic smelling mask on your face and they tell you to count backwards. That somewhere you have a letter you've given to someone to deliver to your family if you don't wake up. And when you wake up, let me tell you from experience, the first thing you do is not run to your work computer and start shooting off your mouth again. You wake up praying this. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and how fleeting my life is. You made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. Salah. And after that, you have a lot more to say to people that is kind. And a lot more to say about love. And a lot less to say about controlling and fixing and correcting and informing. In other words, you just have a lot less energy after that to try to be God. And you start wondering, why did I wake up? Uh, Other people don't always wake up. Why should I have this next leg of the journey? But then you realize, I have a next leg to the journey. I haven't messed up so badly that God has cut me off. And then comes one of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian life. We're scared of it, but it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian life. Repentance. Repentance literally means to turn and go the other way. You know, you you fall asleep going one way and you wake up and say, you know what? I can turn and go a different way than this. 
Repentance is going to be very hard for a lot of us. Some of us would rather eat a bowl of razor blades than ever admit that we have been wrong. And I don't mean wrong about buying the wrong butter at the store. I mean deeply wrong in a way that has hurt other people. Admitting that sort of thing is very hard for some of us. But repentance is needed. Repentance is a key to the Christian life. Because you can't be cured until you admit you're sick. Your pain cannot be removed until you admit there is a pain. Your relationships can't be restored until you face the fact that they are broken. And that you did a lot of the breaking trying to tighten all the bolts. Someone cannot receive the forgiveness of God. I didn't say that the forgiveness of God wasn't offered. I said they cannot receive it until they can admit that they need it. Admitting that you need God's forgiveness is called repentance. In Psalm 39, it sounds like this. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. Rescue me from my rebellion. Do not let fools mock me. I am silent before you. I won't say a word, for my punishment is from you. I think that repentance is one of the most hopeful things in the world. Because it contains within it the promise of a second chance. It's almost just part of repentance. The promise of a second chance. Now some of us are going to have to put some things to the side that we learned growing up if we're going to be able to repent. For instance, if, you're, if, if the family you grew up in only made you admit you were wrong so they could build a case file against you for the future, Right? So you'd be in an argument and they'd say, well, remember that other time you were wrong and you finally admitted it? Well, why can't you admit it this time? You're wrong all the time. I've got this time and I've got this time. And I, so you just kind of stopped admitting you were wrong because it was just like a exhibit A, B, and C someone's going to bring out on you later. Well, if, that, if that's how you're brought up, you've got to put that to the side because God is not like that. That is not what God does with our repentance. Some of us don't like to repent because it means we have to think about negative stuff and it dredges up all these negative feelings from our past and all these uncomfortable conversations have to happen. It's just a lot easier to ignore it and to not to. But, but God is not going to leave you to tread in the water of all those negative feelings. You're not gonna, he's not just going to leave you to drown in them after he encouraged you to bring them up. In fact, he wants to take them away. God wants to give you real peace. Not just put a band-aid over things. If the reason that you don't repent is because you need an illusion, an illusion of your own perfection in order to maintain control of your life, to be the top dog, to be respected. If you started admitting you were wrong about things, then you'd be vulnerable and people would throw it in your face all the time and, and you'd get taken advantage of. If that's your way of thinking, let me, let me tell you something you already know in the deepest place within you, and that is that you've already lost. All your family and friends, they already know your sins. 
They just don't talk about them around you because you're so doggone controlling and domineering. You haven't fooled anyone. You haven't propped anything up. Everyone knows. You've already lost respect. All you have is control now. And you sense it, how people are avoiding you and trying to slip out from under your thumb whenever they can. Why not do the truly brave thing and shake free of this devil that is controlling you and repent and have peace from God because he has a life for you where you don't have to do this. You're not trying to control everything because you're an evil controlling person. You just want to live in a world where you can love others freely and be loved by them. You just don't feel like you're getting that unless you control everything. You really want good. Well, here's the deal. God wants to give that to you. So you don't have to fight for that yourself. He wants to give you that life where you can just be free to love others and be loved by them. If we can push all these things aside and repent, then we can pray Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cries for help. Don't ignore my tears. For I am your guest, a traveler passing through as my ancestors were before me. Leave me alone so I can smile again. Somebody in first service asked, what's that about? Well, this followed that line where it said, God, it feels like you're smacking me all the time. So this is the part of the prayer that says, can, can we stop this part? I get it now. I'm repenting now. Can you stop smacking me and, and let's get to the other part. Before I'm gone and exist no more. Peter Craigie says, we are journeyers and God is our only home. Now, when we do this, then comes the greatest truth you'll ever experience. And that is that at the backside of repentance, God is a mercy giver. He's not deaf to all of our cries for what's been going on. God has been setting all of this up. Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation. He's been setting all this up for one thing so that you and I could come to this place where we can repent and then receive this loving mercy that God wants to give us. The abbot primate Gregory Poland writes about Psalm 39. He says that it's a prayer that's reflecting on a life that actually wasn't very well lived. But thankfully, it is never, never too late to turn to God. He still has this life he wants to give to us. He always has. He always will. So is this right? Can we really say things that hurt people and God forgives us for free? Well, free for us, but it was not free for him. Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God with us. He lived and he taught us about the love of God. We were so threatened by that message that what did we as humanity do? We tried to kill him. The ultimate sin against God to kill his one best representative. Even then, he took all of that sin into himself. As they created a false trial, brought lying witnesses, spit on him, punched him, laughed at him scourged him with these terrible whips made of broken uh, pottery shards and animal bones, nailed him to a cross, and then continued to mock him all afternoon. He took all of that in and said, I still forgive. You're still my children. I can't help it. I still want full lives for you. Is that really true? 
Well, God verified that message. God verified that message by raising Jesus from the dead and releasing the power of the Holy Spirit through him to share this good news with the whole world. The resurrection is God's way of saying, my name is God and I approve this message. Everything he said, everything he did is true. It's right. He said, this is what God's like and that is what I am like. God is like Jesus and the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus' message. This is, in fact, who God is, a mercy giver. And he paid for it with his own body and blood. So the very thing that is being prayed for in Psalm 39, which is I've made a lot of mistakes, especially talking too much, and uh, I've hurt a lot of people, and God, I just want mercy and relief. That's the very thing that's guaranteed by God in Christ Jesus. If you and I can admit this life is short, too short for all this petty sinning, He already has eternal life offered to us. He's been waiting a long time for us to accept it. If you and I can repent and say, my sin is my fault. I might have been dealt a bad hand, but I didn't necessarily do anything to make it better. I might have made some parts of it worse. God has already forgiven us and bought and paid. He saw all of this that was going to transpire and went to the cross anyway. He was thinking of you. He gave us everything before you were even born. So if you're worn out, fed up, fearful of life as it has been, God is already there with rest and peace and courage for you. I believe God gave us Psalm 39 to pray because he knew someday some kids who talk too much are going to find it and pray it. And this would be our introduction to this thing called grace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is how far I'm going to go with this. And for anyone who was saying, well, I've sinned too much, he doesn't mean me. He took a cup and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. So yes, for you. I've already seen it all, God says, and I will pour out my blood tomorrow for the forgiveness of sins. So come to me. So this this, uh, table, the, the Lord's table, when we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the cup, we're receiving this promise of God, the truth that he is a mercy giver. And he offers that to us this morning. This morning we have an, an extra piece, if you like. So I have this anointing oil. In the church, when you anoint people with oil, it's a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. So if you like, you can come forward right to here and you say, today I give God my whole heart. And I'll take this oil and put the sign of the cross in your forehead and I'll say, go in peace and walk with him. Into this new life he's trying to give to you, right? You could become a follower of Jesus Christ today with that prayer. Today I give my whole heart to God. Go in peace and walk with him. Some of you made that decision many, many years ago. And yet you still are finding these pockets, right? I keep finding these pockets where I thought I gave God my whole heart. And then I realized, oh, I guess except this part. That's a survival mechanism I picked up. (laughs) I never really, I don't think God probably likes that one. So, you know, you give him that part. And then about five years later, you're like, oh, except for this I was keeping. So, 
even you can come forward and say, today I'm giving God my whole heart, at least every part that I'm aware of. Say, go in peace and walk with him. And then he's got this whole new adventure because there's this whole new closet in your soul that God never got into and he can do great things. So go in peace and walk with God. Amen.